I invite you all to open your Bibles with me to the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 11. I'm just going to read one verse to whet our appetites. It's the verse that has the sermon title in it. It's chapter 11, verse 9. And then the Lord said to me, There is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They were out to get him. They had come together in secrecy and plotted against him. Behind closed doors, they had decided to gang up on him and lead him like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Lambs don't know what's happening. Come along with me. They were out to get him. There was a conspiracy against him. Who am I talking about? (laughs) The key words for these two chapters is our title for today, conspiracy. And there are actually two conspiracies that are recounted in these two chapters. Both of them were real, neither were theories, neither were just theoretical. And one of them, the smaller one, was embedded within the larger one. And the story of both of these two conspiracies can teach us about how to live as a follower of Jesus Christ today. The first conspiracy was the bigger one. And it was a conspiracy against the Lord. Look with me at chapter 11, verse 1. In this chapter, the word of the Lord is going to come to Jeremiah and tell him to tell the people of Judah once again why the Lord's judgment was going to come upon them. And it's because they had broken their covenant with Yahweh. Jeremiah was a broken record about a broken covenant. Jeremiah was a broken record about a broken covenant. And here he goes again. Look at verse 1. I said this to myself several times this week. Jeremiah was a broken record about a broken covenant. Am I starting to sound like a broken record about a broken covenant? (laughs) Well, here he goes again. Look at verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah and to those who live in Jerusalem. Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the man who does not obey the terms of this covenant. The terms I commanded your forefathers when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron smelting furnace. I said, obey me and do everything I command you and you will be my people and I will be your God. Then I will fulfill the oath I swore to your forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the land you possess today. I answered, amen, Lord. Now, this story should sound familiar to us. It it certainly should have been familiar to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. It's probably a shortened version of what King Josiah had read to them all when the book of the law was discovered and recovered from the temple. Do you remember that from the end of 2 Kings? It's just basic Exodus and Deuteronomy stuff. Deuteronomy 101. Yahweh saved them from Egypt by His grace. He brought them out of slavery, out of hardship, the iron-smelting furnace of Egypt. Who wants to hang out in an iron smelting furnace? Not me. 
Yahweh rescued them from the furnace, and then he promised them on oath to give them the fair and fruitful land of Canaan. How's that for a deal? They only have one job. Obey Yahweh. Be loyal to Yahweh. Follow Yahweh's commandments. Fear Him alone and walk in relationship with Him. You will be my people and I will be your God. <laughs> I love that language of relationship. Yahweh was to be the portion of Jacob. And Israel had said, Amen. Let it be so. There was this ceremony where they adopted this covenant. Half of Israel stood on one mountain and half of them stood on another and they would yell from one side the, the blessings and the other side would say amen and then the other side would yell out the curses and the other side would say amen they all adopted this covenant they were all in but they did not actually obey they were not actually faithful they were not actually loyal they did not follow his commandments they did not fear him alone Verse 6, the Lord said to me, proclaim all these words in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Listen to the terms of the covenant and follow them. From the time I brought your forefathers up from Egypt until today, I warned them again and again, broken record, saying, obey me. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So I brought on them all the curses of the covenant I had commanded them to follow, but, they did, but that they did not keep. That's why judgment is coming. It's because of a conspiracy. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, There is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem, they have returned to the sins of their forefathers who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken the covenant I made with their forefathers. Broken record about a broken covenant. Judah knew the terms of the covenant and had breached them. Repeatedly, over and over again. As you read Jeremiah, do you see how many angles Jeremiah can come from to get this same point across? How, so many images and illustrations that he can draw from. A few weeks ago, it, it came at the medical side of things. Remember the balm of Gilead? Is there no good medicine? Well, yes, there's good medicine, but the patient, Judah, had decided it wasn't so bad and had refused the right treatment. Earlier on in the book, it was like divorce proceedings. Remember that from chapters 2 and 3? Well, this is more like that. Judah knew what they'd agreed to in Exodus and Deuteronomy when they got married, but they were in flagrant violation of it. Judah had been running around behind Yahweh's back. Not that you can actually do anything behind Yahweh's back, but they were trying. They were breaking the covenant repeatedly. And in fact, they were conspiring together to rebel against it. They were in it together. Not just all a bunch of individuals, but together. This was a mutiny. This was a revolt. I think quite possibly that, the, that this was bubbling under the surface the entire time that King Josiah was trying to make his reforms across Judah. 
King Josiah was trying to turn these people back to the Lord, cutting down the idols, restoring worship to the temple, not to the high places, you know, chopping down the high places, cleaning up Jerusalem. But many Judahites did not like it one little bit. On the inside, they were conspiring together to throw off Yahweh. There is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. Today I have four points of practical application that I think we can draw from these two chapters. And here's the first one. Number one, don't be shocked if people conspire against your Lord. If you're taking notes, that's point number one. Don't be shocked if people conspire against your Lord. Should they do it? No. Will they do it? Often, yes. Don't be shocked. Don't be super surprised if people come together to resist the Lord and His good plan for them. This has been happening ever since the dawn of humanity, right? Don't be floored by this because it's the story of the whole Old Testament. I mean, these people were the covenant people of God. These weren't foreign nations who didn't know any better, so to speak. These people had the temple, the law, the sacrifices, and the covenant. This is Judah. This is Jerusalem. So, so on one level, it is shocking because these were to be God's people. And just look at them. There's definitely a shocking sense of outrage here. But on another level, it should not shock us because that's how people can be. Ever since Adam and Eve, people have come together to resist the Lord and His good plan for them. Now, it must be noted that these conspiracies never take the Lord by surprise. And they never actually threaten Him, right? Remember Psalm 2? Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. And how does the Lord respond? Oh no, the people are rebelling. What am I going to do? Is that what the Lord says? No. Psalm 2 says, The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He sees the conspiracy and he's like, (laughs) Okay, guys, yeah, nice try. Like when they built the Tower of Babel, like we're going to raise ourselves up and kind of threaten the Lord. We're going to be like God. And, And Genesis says that the Lord had to come down to look at it. Like, oh, nice little temple you got there going. Nice little tower. What are you going to do with that? No, he's not scared. And he enthrones his Messiah to take care of it all. But that's the conspiring of the nations. What about the conspiring of God's nation? Of Judah itself? What would the Lord do about them? Verse 11. They have broken the covenant I made with their forefathers. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. They didn't listen to me. I'm not going to listen to them. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. Why not? Why won't their gods help them when disaster strikes? Because they're like what? Two weeks ago. That's it. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch. That's what they are. 
They can't do anything. They can't do anything against you. The gods can't hurt you. But they also can't help you. No matter how many you make. Get out the factory. Start cranking out the idols. They can't do anything. Verse 13. You have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. And the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shameful god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. Do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them, because I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their distress. What is my beloved doing in my temple as she works out her evil schemes with many? Can consecrated me to virtue punishment? <laughs> when you engage in your wickedness, then you rejoice? The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit beautiful in form. But with the roar of a mighty storm, he'll set it on fire and its branches will be broken. <sighs> the Lord Almighty who planted you has decreed disaster for you because the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done evil and provoked me to anger by burning incense to Baal. Jeremiah was a broken record about a broken covenant. Are you starting to get a little tired of the repetition of this message? How do you think Jeremiah felt? He had to deliver this message for 40 years. We've just been in his book for 10 weeks. Don't be shocked if people conspire against your Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I need that reminder. Because I can easily fall into the error of thinking that people are basically good. And deep down, they all love God. And so then I'm shocked when I encounter opposition, hostility, or even persecution. I should know better, though. Remember what we saw in 1 Peter? It is true that all people have something good in them. They're all made in the image of God. And they all know something about God. But aside from the work of the Holy Spirit in someone's heart, deep down humans are not good. And they do not love God. Instead, they make and choose other gods. And in fact, they work together to oppose the one true God. The New Testament has a word for that. It's the word cosmos or world. Humans united in conspiracy against the Lord. And the Bible says that we should not fall in with them. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, the Apostle John said. The Lord is not threatened by these conspiracies. He wasn't threatened by Judah's conspiracy, though he's clearly pictured as hurt by it. Do you hear that anguish in his voice? What is my beloved doing in my temple? as she works out her evil schemes with many. Nothing will stop the Lord's judgment from coming on Judah. That's why Jeremiah is not allowed to pray for them at this point. It won't do any good. There'll be no leniency. They have passed the point of no return. They're going to be uprooted. The Lord Almighty had planted them, and now he's going to undo that planting, just like he said in Deuteronomy. They will be exiled, pulled up by the roots, and sent away. 
Do not be shocked if people conspire against your Lord. And if you get caught up in the crossfire. In verse 18, we get the story of the second conspiracy. And this conspiracy was a conspiracy about Jeremiah. Look with me at verse 18. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at that time he showed me what they were doing. Aha, something's happening here. The Lord knows about a conspiracy. He knows everything. But he revealed it to Jeremiah so that Jeremiah could escape. He got out of town. And now he's telling us about it. Verse 19, I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. He didn't know what was happening. Next thing he knew, his throat was going to be cut. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. See, they were out to get Jeremiah. And they would have succeeded if the Lord had not revealed the plot to him. And so Jeremiah asks the Lord for justice. Look at verse 20. But, O Lord Almighty, you who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I've committed my cause. Now, that kind of seems a little harsh to me. I don't know how it strikes you. But Jeremiah is not saying that he's going to take vengeance on his enemies. He's not like, Lord, bless me as I now take out my sword and go attack my attackers. These men who were coming to conspire who were conspiring to assassinate him. Imagine how he felt. He's just asking for the Lord to give them a taste of their own medicine. He's asking for justice. And the Lord says that he is going to grant Jeremiah's request. Justice is what he's going to get. Verse 21, Therefore this is what the Lord says about the men of Anathoth, who are seeking your life and saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you'll die by our hands. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish them. Their young men will die by the sword, their sons and daughters by famine. Not even a remnant will be left to them, because I will bring disaster on the men of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. Now, before we go any further, I want to point out just how wicked this conspiracy was. Did you pick it up? Who are these men who are plotting to kill Jeremiah? The men of what? Anathoth, right? Kind of hard name to say because it's got the TH in there twice. Anathoth. What town was Jeremiah's hometown? Anybody remember from chapter 1? Three guesses and the first two don't count. Good guess, but it's an hour from Jerusalem. It's a place called Anathoth. This was Jeremiah's hometown. Hometown boy is now the prophet, and the people back at home say, let's kill him. If he keeps talking about Yahweh, 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 broken covenant, broken covenant, broken covenant, return, repent, return. If he keeps that up, let's cut him down. This, were not, this was not Babylon. These were his Israelite neighbors. These were his family. Sometimes when they hate your Lord, 
the people closest to you will hate you too. It's part of the deal. When you accept Jesus, you accept his enemies as your enemies. Now, you're supposed to love them, but they may be very much against you. They'll gang up on you. Don't be surprised. If they conspired against him, they'll conspire against you. Anatoth was a city full of priests. But for several reasons, they could not serve as priests at the temple. And Josiah was going around knocking down all the other places where a priest could do his thing. And Jeremiah was egging him on. And the men of Anatoth were sick and tired of Jeremiah's preaching. They wanted to worship these other gods. And so Jeremiah almost died. They put a hit out on him. We would call this an honor killing. Imagine how Jeremiah must have felt. Actually, you don't have to imagine. He tells us. Look at chapter 12. Jeremiah is frustrated that all of this is still going on. And so he does something that might shock us. He brings it up to God. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet, whoa, I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Here's application point number two this morning. Number two, don't be afraid to tell your Lord what you really think. Don't be afraid to tell your Lord what you really think. Jeremiah sure is bold here, isn't he? You ever talk to God like this? Yet I would speak with you about your justice? Woo! Those are strong words. Now, notice he starts with, you are always righteous, O Lord. Okay? He knows what we learned a few weeks ago about who the Lord is and what the Lord loves. He knows the Lord exercises kindness, chesed, justice. I can't remember the word for justice right now. And righteousness, tzadikah, on earth, for in those he delights. He knows that. He's banking on that. But Jeremiah doesn't understand God's timing on it. I just don't get it. God, when's this going to happen? These men conspired to kill me, and you said you'd deal with them. When? Why not now? I, I don't understand. You said there'd be all these curses. Amen. 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 But now, several centuries have gone by. And Judah's still here. The, the north is gone, but Judah's still here. And I've been saying it. You've been telling me to say it. I've had to say it for 40 years. I'm a broken record about a broken covenant. Covenant. Where's the justice? Can you relate to Jeremiah? He's asking an age-old question. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do they get away with it? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Look at your television. Look at the 
internet. How many righteous people suffer and how many wicked people have more cars, more money, more popularity, more power? Look at verse 2. You have planted them, this is the wicked, and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. This is the wicked. Is that what Proverbs says was going to happen? You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. They're hypocrites. And they're flourishing. Yet you know me, O Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Am I a hypocrite? I don't think so. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Them. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. Fix it. Bring the justice. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked. The animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, he will not see what happens to us. We'll get away with it. They're mocking you, Yahweh. Why do you continue to allow that? Now, before we look at how the Lord responds to Jeremiah, let's just note that he lets Jeremiah talk to him like that. And that's a good thing. It's okay. It's okay for Jeremiah to be raw with the Lord and tell him exactly what he's really thinking. He knows anyway. Jeremiah does this several times in the course of this book. Sometimes these interactions with God are called the confessions of Jeremiah because they're so personal but they're actually more like the protests of Jeremiah. I don't get it, Lord. What are you doing? They are the real and raw personal interactions of Jeremiah with Yahweh. Don't be afraid to talk to the Lord about what's really on your mind. When's the last time you did that? Are your prayer times kind of like, now I lay me down to sleep? Or maybe just the Lord's prayer? Or maybe just a list of kind of requests or a list of praises. When's the last time you protested? What was it about? It's okay. Don't be afraid to talk to God about it. Now be careful when you speak to Him. Don't hear me say be reckless. The Bible says a lot about that too. But obviously, he invites us to bring our hot mess real selves to him and even ask him the hard questions. Where else can we go with them but to him? Talk to your Lord about your heart and your mind and your doubts and your fears and your questions. I'm so glad that Jeremiah could talk this way to Yahweh because I need to some myself. So what is the answer to Jeremiah's questions? We feel them. How would you answer if Jeremiah was asking them to you? Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Well, the Bible gives multiple lines of teaching on this topic. This afternoon, you might want to read Psalm 37 or Psalm 73. Thankfully, they're, they're kind of, the numbers are opposite because you can always remember that 37 and 73 talk about why do the wicked prosper see what they have to say about pretty much the same question that 
Jeremiah had. But here in chapter 12, the Lord does not answer Jeremiah in any way like he might have wanted him to. And not even like he does in Psalm 37 or 73. And if you didn't know that the Lord often does this, often answers a question with another question back, you might be surprised at his response. Look at verse 5. Jeremiah, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? The answer back is basically, Jeremiah, (laughs) I'm sorry, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Buckle up, buttercup. Here's application point number three. Don't be stunned if your Lord says things will get even harder. Don't be stunned if your Lord says things will get even harder. The Lord answers Jeremiah's question with a question of his own. See, you're allowed to ask him these things, but he doesn't owe you an answer. And in fact, he's going to give you what you need, not always what you ask. He answers a question with a question of his own. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? Seems to me that he's likening the conspiracy and the pressures that Jeremiah has felt so far to a demanding foot race between men. Jeremiah is panting. He's he's worn out. And he feels like quitting. It's probably part of what's behind this question about why and how long. How long do I have to run, Lord? But instead of just sympathizing with Jeremiah and comforting him, the Lord braces him for more. It's like the locker room talk at halftime. Get up on your feet. Take a deep breath. There's more coming. He says that compared to what Jeremiah has experienced so far, what is coming is like racing a horse and not on the horse, running against the horse. It's not going to be Jeremiah versus Ucian Bolt or Jesse Owens. It's going to be Jeremiah versus Rich Strike or Seabiscuit. How does that make you feel? Yahweh says, if you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the dangerous thickets by the Jordan? This is a walk in the park compared to the jungle. The conspiracy in your hometown is relatively safe compared to what is on the way, Jeremiah. How does that make you feel? Well, I personally would like to be coddled and told that Things are going to get better, Matt. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's all right. And the Bible does promise that things will get better in time. The Lord has promised good to us in the end. But you and I need to hear that things may get much worse before that. Jeremiah needs to be prepared I don't know about you, but I would much rather know the truth about what's coming than to live in a fantasy world and get blindsided again and again and again. Give it to me straight. I don't like it, 
I don't want things to get harder, but I want to know that it could. The world hates the Lord, and we belong to the Lord, and so the world will hate us. The conspiracies against the Lord will continue, and we will continue to be caught up in the crossfire. Be warned, be ready, and be faithful. Remember, Jeremiah is not being told this so that he fights for his rights or he votes the right people into office, but that he stands firm in his message from the Lord and doesn't waver in sharing it faithfully. Remember chapter 1. Running with the horses means being ready for it to be overwhelming and still not quitting. Okay, I'm running, I'm running against Seabiscuit. Okay, I'm just going to keep running. I'm not going to stop. He told me it would be like this. Trusting God no matter what. Like Joel said last week, when the storm and the waves are overwhelming, trusting in who Jesus is and believing that he has got this and he has got us. Friends, your life may be hard right now. It may get harder. I'm just telling you. Some of your lives are really difficult. And the Bible does not say that it will just get better right away. Any preacher that tells you that is lying to you. He's selling something. There are pressures in our culture that are anti-Christian. Things might get better if God so chooses. That's up to him. But they very well might get worse. And we need to be braced and ready for that. We need to be resilient. I'm not good at that. Not naturally. I'm a whiner and I'm a worrier. But I want to run with the horses. Even if it gets harder and harder for 40 years. I'm sure that Jeremiah wanted to hear that the conspiracy would soon die down and things would get better right around the corner. But the Lord told it to him straight. And I'm sure that in the long run, he was glad that he knew what was coming. It's not that the Lord dismissed what Jeremiah was going through at this point. He wasn't saying that his suffering then in this Anatoth conspiracy was no big deal. He doesn't discount it at all. Look at verse 6. Your brothers, your own family, even they have betrayed you. He sees how bad it is. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. They're two-faced. Don't trust them. There's a conspiracy going on, but it's part of the larger conspiracy against me, Yahweh says. He's basically saying, Yes, Jeremiah, I know how you feel. Verse 7. I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me, therefore I hate her. Those are amazingly strong words. The lion of Judah has turned to attack the Lord of Judah. Judah is roaring at Yahweh. Talk about a conspiracy. Well, what choice does Yahweh have than to bring that conspiracy to judgment? Verse 9. Has not my inheritance become to me like a speckled bird of prey that other birds of prey surround and attack? 
Go and gather all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds, that's foreign kings, will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They'll turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. It will be made a wasteland, parched and desolate before me. Promised land, now wasteland. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. Over all the barren heights in the desert, destroyers will swarm. For the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to the other. No one will be safe. They will sow wheat, but reap thorns. They will wear themselves out, but gain nothing. So bear the shame of your harvest because of the Lord's fierce anger. Yahweh says, they've chosen to hate me, and therefore I must choose to uproot them. And yet even that is not the end of the story. Here's point number four and last. Number four. Don't be surprised if your Lord is amazingly gracious. Don't be surprised if your Lord is amazingly gracious, if his grace just breaks through. After all of what you've heard today, would you expect the Lord to talk about how he's going to save the nations? Look at this. Look, look, look at verse 14. These nations that have conspired against them, even Judah who had conspired against them, against his prophet, look at verse 14. This is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbors who seized the inheritance I gave my people Israel, that's the surrounding four nations, I will uproot them from their lands, and I will uproot the house of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I almost titled this sermon, after I uproot them. But I didn't want to get to the good stuff at the beginning. we got to save the good stuff for the end. After I uproot them, I will again have compassion and will bring each of them back to his own inheritance and his own country. And if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. But if any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. Isn't that amazing? If you read fast, you miss it. But he says, the Lord says that he's going to uproot all of the wicked nations that attack Judah. He's not just going to uproot Judah. He's going to uproot the nations around Judah. But that's not all. He says that after he's done that, he's going to be compassionate on not just Judah, but the nations. If they repent and turn to him, he will receive them and plant them again. He's relentless in his amazing grace. Nobody gets away with anything. And yet, he gives to those who do not deserve it. Even to foreigners from faraway lands like Indonesia and Pennsylvania. This is a glimpse of the grace of our Lord who has given us a mission to tell all of the nations about his great compassion and salvation. Gentiles, like, like you and me, can go from God-hating conspirators to God-loving members of his covenant family. And here's how he made that happen. By coming in the person of Jesus Christ and experiencing the worst of the worst of conspiracies.
They were out to get him. They had come together in secrecy and plotted against him. Behind closed doors, they had decided to gang up on him and lead him like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. They were out to get him. There was a conspiracy against him. And I'm not talking just about Jeremiah. I'm talking about Jesus. Jesus. 